So I thought it could be fun today to have a real Felix Adler-style ethical society. Many of you know Felix Adler is the founder of ethical culture, founded the movement in 1876. And uh, he was a cool guy, great ideas, a little bit, little bit wacky, some of them. So let's see what he would do about, um, about vocation. Vocation, which is the theme of our month uh, this May, was really dear to Felix Adler's heart. He actually thought that vocation, kind of how we lived our lives through our work, was important to democracy. He felt that in America, voting blocks should be based on your professional life. So you'd caucus with people of your same profession to decide what candidate you might vote for. And he thought that societies also should be organized based on vocation, that vocations should all sit together in society. So let's see, we're in Washington, D.C. Do we have any lawyers here? Raise your hands. We're going to put the lawyers over on the right by the window. Any professors and teachers here? Well, yep, you're going to go on over to the left here. Business people, hands up. All right, fundraisers, hands up. And see me later about the pledge campaign. Anybody? <laughs> Nobody? Now, already I see a little problem with Adler's vision. There appear to be some of the women here who have mistakenly, obviously, raised their hands in these professional categories. In Felix Adler's original vision, women had a professional section all of their own, their highest vocation, motherhood. So if you are a woman, you get to be in the motherhood section. And if you are a woman and not a mother, I don't know what Adler would have done with you. And again, perhaps we won't follow Adler's original model. He had a somewhat Victorian sensibility, despite the fact that he lived until the 1930s. He was a man of his time, or as one of the other leaders in the movement recently said to me, perhaps a man slightly behind his time. <laughs> but there are things about Felix Adler's vocational model that I really love, actually, that I think are informative and can continue to be informative for our time. One of the things that Adler believed was that we, each of us had a, a kind of ethical agency, an ability and really a duty to act ethically in the world. And Adler thought that you could be an ethical agent not just in professions that might seem like they would be uh, ripe for that, not just as a philosopher or as an ethicist, but that you could be an ethical agent as a scientist or as an artist. That one's work in those arenas isn't just about science or just about art, but about fulfilling a deeper meaning through that work, about fulfilling one's moral nature. In one of Adler's greatest works called An Ethical Philosophy of Life, he wrote, every vocation satisfies some one or more of the empirical human needs, but in the very act or process of doing so, it ought, in order to deserve the name of a vocation, to satisfy also a spiritual need, to contribute in a specific way toward the formation of a spiritual personality. End quote. There's something in this that I just love that speaks to the possibility or maybe the necessity that each of us find and create meaning 
through how we live in the world. Not just sort of life meaning, but but really kind of deep spiritual ethical meaning. And that we can do that in a variety of ways in our lives and especially through our professional work, through what Adler would have called our vocations. I think about the story that Dr. Heron shared this morning, the story of Marian Anderson. That story was chosen many years ago to to be the story for our theme of vocation because Marian Anderson wasn't just a great singer. Her vocation, her calling, wasn't just to sing beautifully, but as the story tells us, to give voice to a whole people, to be a symbol for the people who heard her voice, a symbol for America. Her vocation, in some ways, was to sing not just beautifully, but courageously. But even in that concept, in that Adlerian idea of our ethical agency as found through our vocations, we're still missing, I think, a great deal. One of the challenges behind the, beside the whole uh, woman motherhood issue is that Felix Adler thought that only a few professions really counted as vocations. He entirely left out what we sometimes call menial labor, workforce labor, the work that the majority of humankind, as it turns out, continues to be engaged in. And in that way, he limited rather severely the number of people who could be included in his understanding of vocation and ethical agency within that vocation. And I think, too, it placed limits on what in our life can be seen as vocational in the deep sense of the word. What can be seen as a calling, a being called forth relating to a sense of call. I just got back, as I mentioned during the opening words, from the American Ethical Union's National Assembly in Chicago, This was the 99th one, the 99th assembly. Next year, it follows, you can imagine, will be the 100th. (laughs) It'll be in Stamford, Connecticut, and I encourage you to consider going because I imagine it will be a celebration, that 100th assembly. Before the assembly, uh, which started on Thursday and where a number of West folks still are, was the National Leaders Council meeting, a gathering of clergy leaders from throughout the the movement, including, of course, Mary Herman, who until March served here for so many years with love and dedication, and including Joan Johnson Lewis, who has served at Northern Virginia Ethical Society, our closest sister society, for 17 years and who concludes her service there this year as well. And many other leaders who have served societies, who serve them now, or who have have created new ways to live out what, for all of us there, is a vocation. And so we talked in that gathering about clergy leadership in the movement, about vocation and professionalism, about how our work is both more than a job and also a job, It was a good conversation, sometimes inspiring, often hard. And you would think it would be that conversation from that National Leaders Council that would especially inform my thoughts on vocation today. But it wasn't, actually. 
It wasn't the part of the assembly that was all the leaders in a circle thinking deep thoughts about leaderly things. It was a coffee house on Friday night at the Chicago Ethical Society where a weird guy named Steve came into his own. Let me explain. I've been thinking about the idea of vocation in its deepest and most expansive sense. There's a working definition that a lot of folks use from Frederick Beekner, who's a Presbyterian minister, as it happens, but also just a great thinker and writer. I commend his writing to you. And Frederick Beekner said that vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And that is what I saw all through the assembly as I heard from different lay people, different ethical culturists involved in the movement all across the country. Some of you know the name Arnold Fishman. He's a member of the Philadelphia, I'm going to get the name wrong, I think it's Eshop, the Ethical the Ethical Humanist Society of Philadelphia. They're all a little bit different. The Ethical Humanist Society of Philadelphia. Uh, Arnold Fishman is a member there, and at this assembly, he received the Anna Garland Spencer Award for volunteerism, for his volunteer work through the Philadelphia Society and the many years that he's put into it. Now, if you know Arnold, he is a big presence. He's a lawyer, and I would guess that as a lawyer, he's a big lawyer. You know, he, he inhabits his work, I imagine, in um, successful and significant ways. And I was so moved by the words that he shared when accepting the Anna Garland Spencer Award about the way he talked about his work at the Philadelphia Society as the work in his life that had given him meaning that had led to his own ethical and spiritual development, the way it had been encouraged, the way it had grown in that work. It was quite moving to hear him articulate what that had meant to him. So that was one time when I saw vocation really lived out. And there were others, of course, who had various leadership and volunteer roles at the assembly who did all sorts of other things in their lives professionally, perhaps vocationally but who found a piece of their vocation, a piece of their meaning-making, their deep gladness, and the world's need in their work for ethical culture. And then there was this weird guy named Steve. I saw him around the assembly. I've met him at other assemblies, too, actually. He's not at all sinister weird, not in the least. Just, you know, kind of quiet, kind of awkward-seeming, a little gangly, not the easiest person to chat with. You know, kind of of a nice-looking, kind of weird guy. And then I went to the coffee house on Friday evening, and I saw Steve with his violin playing a duet with his mother at the piano, a piece his father had composed. And I saw Steve on guitar a little bit later, backing up a couple of singers in a kind of ad hoc band of Chicago Society members. It wasn't just that Steve is a wonderful musician, although he is very talented. 
And talented in that particular way where musicians can be moving, you know. It's not just the technical proficiency, but it's what they say through their music. It wasn't just that I saw Steve's voice in a different way through his music, although that's true. But that somehow all of Steve seemed different to me. I experienced suddenly Steve the compatriot, Steve the son, Steve the fellow jammer. Steve actually wasn't any different, you know. He was the same Steve. But I got to see him more fully. My eyes were opened to the fullness of who Steve is. Vocations, I think, do that for us, allow us to show our full selves. And while occasionally that's through our work, it's often so much broader for us, often comes in so many other places in our lives. There's a a book that's been getting a lot of buzz recently. It's by David White, and it's called The Three Marriages, Reimagining Work, Self, and Relationship. It was written as a kind of response to the work-life balance conundrum, you know, that we talk about so much in the media and in our own lives. And I've actually had this book on my nightstand uh, for many months. It was lent to me by a member of Wes, in fact. I haven't been able to read it, unfortunately, because I've been too busy. And I'm pretty sure that my two-year-old drew on the inside cover of the book. So now I'm going to have to buy a new one to give it back to that West member who so thoughtfully donated it to me. I'm pretty sure I am not achieving the right work-life balance. It's possible there. The book is an indication. Luckily, from what I have read of the book, I know that White, David White, doesn't think that I should be. In fact, he resists the whole idea of work-life balance. Here's what he writes. We should stop thinking in terms of work-life balance. Work-life balance is a concept that has us simply lashing ourselves on the back and working too hard in each of the three commitments. That's that's self-relationship and work. In the ensuing exhaustion, we ultimately give up on one or more of them to gain an easier life. But each one of the three marriages is non-negotiable at its core. And we can start to realign our understanding and our efforts away from trading and bartering parts of ourselves as if they were salable commodities and more toward finding a central conversation that can hold all of these three marriages together. What David White is talking about, I think, is integration, about integrating a self the many parts of our self, and about finding and making meaning in different ways. I'm looking forward to finishing the book as soon as I find the time, and I'll let you know how it goes. But even that book, even the idea of integrating our working lives and our relationship lives and our self-lives, it still misses part of the picture. One of the reasons that I try to resist work-life balance conversations, beside the fact that I really do attempt to, uh, to opt out of the I'm busier than you, sort of um, uh, the sainthood of busyness concept, 
But one of the reasons that I have someone else is opting out, too. That's good. We'll opt out together. One of the reasons that I resist work-life balance conversations is that the conversation itself is so damned privileged. You know, the mommy wars and how much time I spend with my kids and whether I'm making my own baby food while simultaneously finishing my dissertation, running a Fortune 500 company, and doing yoga two hours a day. All of that, that whole conversation, is an inaccessible experience for so many Americans. And therefore, frankly, an unimportant conversation for them. I am talking about the majority of Americans, the folks who live on minimum wage, often with two jobs or three jobs, working those jobs to simply keep food on the table or unable to find those jobs, and therefore living on public assistance which doesn't stretch far enough for food on the table if you also wanted electricity, for instance. And there are some good conversations happening. There were conversations at the assembly, in fact, about a living wage, about what we need to do in our states and our jurisdictions, here in the district, across the country, to bring the conversation from a minimum wage to a living wage. And so I think in some ways the conversation about living vocationally with deep meaning misses the point for an awful lot of people who are just trying to live, trying to make it through. Although, and it is an important although, I do deeply appreciate the call to value all work. And I regularly take time to appreciate the work of the people around me doing what we call menial work, also known as work that substantially improves our experience of the world cleaning and food service and public transportation and the like. But even with that framework, there's no question that there is a crisis in this country around jobs, around jobs paying enough to live on, around there being enough jobs in general. One of the most interesting conversations around work right now, I think, is on what some people call the far left. I was actually I was reading a New York Times article about um, about work and productivity, and uh, and the it was an op-ed, and the author, whom I don't remember, uh, said something like, um, "Gosh, you know, the people on the far left are really going out there and, and linked to an article." So that's the article I'm going to quote for you today. The one that uh, that the uh, New York Times op-ed writer thought was a little bit too crazy, um, out on the far left about whether or not we should even have to work, about the idea of productivity in our society and what it means, the cult of productivity. So here's a long quote. It's just too good. I couldn't cut it, so hang with me. From Alex Perrine in one of those far-left articles. This one was on uh, Salon.com. In our political culture, for some reason, capitalism, dependence on government is considered sinful while dependence on an employer is virtuous. I suppose this is because when you are depending on an employer, you are doing something for the money. 
But what are we asking people unable to find work in lucrative, high-skill industries to do these days, exactly? We are mostly asking them to place ingredients in Dorito powder-dusted hard taco shells or get trampled by mobs of their fellow low-wage workers at Walmart the day after Thanksgiving. The rest of this quote is not safe for work. This is work, so maybe it's safe for my work, but might not be safe for your work. Turn the podcast down. People should be free from shitty jobs. The freer they are from shitty jobs, the more incentive there will be to make jobs less shitty. This is why we need a comprehensive national health care system and a guaranteed basic income. And why not a job guarantee, too, if working is in itself so virtuous? It's easy, Alex Perrine goes on, it's easy for the thought leader and executive classes to embrace a do-what-you-love-and-love-what-you-do philosophy when they are wealthy enough to work hard only voluntarily and when their jobs grant them status. But this is a truth most Americans know in their bones. Most work sucks and people don't like doing it. The song, Take This Job and Shove It, spent 18 weeks on the country charts in 1977. 1970s country music fans had a clearer understanding of the ennui of wage slavery than modern elites. End quote. I like it. Long live the revolution, people! The assembly this year was all about getting money out of politics, and there were some really inspiring speakers. And it's possible I have drunk just a little too much of the ethical Kool-Aid and am feeling especially revolutionary. But, you know, we are, in fact, the people who are supposed to be thinking this way, who are supposed to be questioning how our world works and what makes for a productive life whether we want the world to be producing more widgets or producing more beauty, more love, more connection. Business people know this, actually. Those capitalists, they're not all bad. Guy Kawasaki, whose whose job title, I swear, is chief evangelist at Canva, (laughs) he's an entrepreneur, wrote this. The key question you should ask yourself before starting any new venture is, do I want to make meaning? The DNA of great organizations contains the desire to make meaning, to make the world better for their customers and for their employees. Having this desire doesn't guarantee that you'll succeed, but if you fail, at least you fail doing something worthwhile. Artists know it, too, the importance of meaning-making in their work, on that, on that same blog where I found this quote from Guy Kawasaki was a quote from Beethoven, who wrote, I have never thought of writing for reputation and honor. What I have in my heart must come out. That's the reason why I compose. So here is what I want, I think, as I think about vocation and work, about labor and productivity, I want a world in which anyone can be a Beethoven, if they'd like to, where we can find the meaning in our lives and not have to worry about having enough money at the same time, or where at least we can work in ways that allow for meaning-making, whether we find it in the work itself or outside of it. It's fitting, I think, to be talking about all of this near the beginning of May, When we celebrate May Day, which I grew up thinking was really just little girls around a maypole, 
but which is also known as International Workers' Day. And in fact, it was May 4th today in 1886 when that day really began, when people were killed in Chicago, Illinois, as it happens, while striking for the eight-hour workday. I want to give a shout-out now to our old friend Felix Adler, whom we disparaged just a little at the beginning of this platform for his thoughts on women, because he was, in fact, a great friend to the worker. He worked long and hard himself to bring about the very first child labor laws and supported the labor movement, which was burgeoning at the time of his beginning work in ethical culture. Well, May days since that time in 1886 have seen riots and demonstrations, calls for workers' rights, and for a reasonable working life. And we are still fighting that fight. We've gone backwards sometimes, I think. The demonstrations seem to be quieter now, but the need feels almost even greater. As the country sinks further into inequality, and those with the luxury to be Beethoven make their music, and the rest of the country works three jobs to feed their children. And yet, through all of this, we do make meaning somehow. We are all, I think, trying to make meaning, those of us who are Beethoven and those of us who are wage earners, and those of us who are looking for work and not finding it week after week. David White has it right in the Three Marriages book. We're trying to integrate the various parts of our life together to create a single whole, to be the single whole. And we might find it maybe in our work or in our service to a society that we love, perhaps in the music we make at a Friday night coffee house. Perhaps in our families, hopefully in all those places, and in that elusive third marriage David White talks about, the relationship to the self, in finding what calls deepest within us. The world I want is the one where work is plenty if you want it, And resources are plenty for all. Where productivity is less about widgets and more about health, our own health and the environment's health and the health of our nation. I quoted Frederick Buechner earlier about vocation, that deep gladness and deep need. But there's another quote that that takes the idea of vocation a little bit on its head. And I like it maybe even more. It's from Howard Thurman. Don't ask yourself what the world needs, Howard Thurman said. Ask yourself what makes you come alive, and then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Our work, then, or part of it, is to create a world where everyone can ask themselves what makes them come alive and what a world it would be if they could.